0: This is Project Challenge with your host, Doug Lund. Writing shotgun this week, Carl Undine. Probably remember him from a few episodes ago. <laughs> Why Can't Jeremy Read? In which he gave us a dissertation on the 1990s classic, Powder. Eric wasn't able to join us this week, but he's got his own Comic-Con episode that he's doing with Bitface. Make sure and check that out because I know that he's got some pretty special things lined up. But uh, I wanted to be able to give the Project Challenge listeners very quick feedback on everything that went down at Comic-Con this week. And I couldn't think of anyone better to help me in that journey than Mr. Lundeen. Thank you.
1: I think the way this is supposed to go is the first thing I'm supposed to ask you. I'm I'm a noob at this. But, Doug, what
0: are you drinking? What the fuck am I drinking? Elephant Rock IPA. This is by the Pikes Peak Brewing Company. So, what do you think of it? So far, I'm not... A huge fan, but I've only had a couple of sips. Pike's Peak Brewing Company's in Monument, Colorado. I didn't know Monument had breweries. Monument, a little shithole in between here and Colorado Springs that the only thing it's known for, as far as I'm concerned, is trying not to get pulled over. Right. It's like the, uh, oh shit, what's the name of that little town in between Fort Riley and Junction City? That's OG Ogden. No, not between um, Fort Riley and Manhattan, the one between Fort Riley and, and Junction City. Yeah, that's adjacent to Junction City. That's Grandview Plaza. You know what? Ogden or Grandview Plaza, those are both the same thing. They're little communities whose government revenue is driven by speeding violations. And Stacy's Breakfast, in the case of Grandview Plaza. Oh, yeah, Stacy's is good. It's gangster. But this Speed Trap has a, <laughs> a brewery, apparently, Elephant Rock IPA. I don't know that I've had a Pike's Peak beer before. This one's all right. I'll keep sipping on it. I'm not going to rate it quite yet because I'm not ready to. But even though I already know the answer to this question, Carl, what are you drinking? I am drinking a Kentucky Mule. (laughs) So for those of you
1: unfamiliar with a Kentucky Mule, it's a bastardized version of the Moscow Mule. It has ginger beer or ginger ale, depending upon what you have available, lime juice. Here's the dark horse ingredient, basil and bourbon hence the Kentucky in the mule. I got uh, introduced to this not that long ago by another good friend, and it's kind of become my weapon of choice at this point. So it's top-notch. I'm giving it a 4.8, mostly because I mixed it, which means it's going to be super good. But yeah, if if you like bourbon and you want to try a variation on, you know, a, a bourbon and Coke or whatever, I highly recommend you try the Kentucky mule. I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole on on the drinks this evening, but you said, I don't necessarily know that I like this. I'm going to give it a couple more sips and then uh, I'll let you know. So do you find that when you drink beer that you can start drinking it and halfway through you like it better than you liked it on the first sip?
0: Yes, absolutely. Really? Okay. I drink really bitter beer. So it tastes different three sips in and 12 sips in. It does. It takes me a while to, for, my, I guess, my palate to adjust to the potency.
1: With beer, I'm a one and done. Like I, I try it. I either like it or I don't. So that's, that's interesting to me that it actually sort of settles on your taste buds as you work your way into it. So
0: interesting. I think anything that's got that um, heavy of a, a bitter flavor, I'm going to use red wine as an example, once it gets a little oxygen and, and once your palate can adapt, you start to pick up on the nuances and the real power of the beverage at that point.
1: And it might even be like a saturation thing that like your taste buds have to be saturated with it before you really get a good read. Cause maybe, you know,
0: maybe you're still tasting the freaking burrito you had five minutes ago. I will say I do like it. I'm about halfway through this first can. Um, it, it's all right. It, it's not the best IPA I've ever had, but for, a uh, A highway shithole. It's not terrible. Enough about drinks, though. We've got a long list of cool geek shit to talk about. We got a lot of great shit at Comic-Con. One of my favorite trailers, and I did not expect this, was Thor Ragnarok. This movie drops in theaters November 3rd. Let's start with Thor. Sure. I am tentatively excited about
1: this. I think that they did something very clever with this movie that came out of nowhere. Uh, I think they may see great gains from this. If you really go back and watch the trailer, it's basically a road trip buddy comedy. Sure. You've got Thor and uh, the Incredible Hulk on a road trip. I think it looks great. Um, You know, there's, there's a couple of... Uh, of funny things that I saw along the way. Like, um, I, I love the fact that uh, the Hulk has obviously been given some degree of intelligence at this point by way of some of the dialogue scenes. My theory is that they gave him some of the Alzheimer's medicine from the planet of the apes, but we'll have to see, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, 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 kind of, he, he kind of had that Caesar talk when he was, uh, when he was talking to Thor at the end of the, the, the trailer. So, but yeah, and, and and obviously necessary vehicle, necessary uh, plot mechanism in order to make that work. You can't do the buddy comedy with the Hulk and uh, and Thor unless the Hulk can actually talk. I thought that was a great idea. The things that I was um, not as crazy about, I, I do not like Thor modeling for Abercrombie and Fitch. I think Thor is supposed to have long hair. I don't like the, the short-haired Thor. Kate is obviously as creepy as ever in her role, but she's also like creepy hot, which I've never quite been able to reconcile, but she looks like she was a top-notch choice for, for the villain. The other big thing that I saw in the uh, in the trailer that I thought was very interesting, that there is a fight sequence that goes down between the Hulk and Fenris, which is the, the wolf that, as I understand it correctly, is actually the child of Loki by way of traditional Norse mythology. So, that's really cool because in Ragnarok, in in conventional mythology, Thor is supposed to fight Fenris, unless I'm mistaken, at at Ragnarok. That's supposed to be like the end of days. And so, I thought it was very interesting that the, uh, the filmmakers were bold enough, if you will, to play around with conventional Norse mythology and maybe drop the giant green troll... A.K.A. the Hulk into the battle for Ragnarok, you know the true mythological battle for uh, the end of times. So, uh, there's a lot to like there. I, I'm really excited about it. But principally, the thing I like the most is
0: they they did this bold stroke where they chose to do this as a buddy comedy. So, what did you think? Oh man, this is going to be the easiest episode I've ever recorded because I'm just going to shut up and and let you talk. <laughs> it's taken me a while to warm to the idea of the buddy comedy Thor movie. And that's because it's just, it's so different than both of the first two Thor movies and really anything that we've seen in the Marvel universe up to this date. Right? Sure. The director is not one that I'm terribly familiar with. I know I'm going to butcher his name. I think it's Taika Waititi. (laughs) (laughs) If, if not, he should totally change his name to that. (laughs) Well, he's not directed a Marvel film before. In fact, this is his first I would say, major motion picture. I mean, he's done wow. other movies, but nothing on this scale or budget. And, and they gave him the reins to a very lucrative franchise, not just Thor, but the MCU in general. I think it's indicative of the fact that they're starting to take some creative risks, which is always a good thing. Right. We are definitely getting something that we've never seen before in the MCU. I guess it remains to see whether that's good or bad. Yeah, the first trailer, where it was pretty apparent that that's what they were doing. I wasn't that excited about it. After seeing this trailer, I think I'm on board.
1: I think there's a lot of good that can happen from this movie. I, I think the main thing, though, and, and, and again, not to take anything away from the value of what I think they're putting together with this film. But it, in some respects, the next little bit of Marvel runway, the number one mission has to be... Don't fuck anything up before Infinity Wars. Right? Like, like that has to be the thing. And and to your point, um I think choosing to take a risk with this and do this as the road trip buddy comedy um shows just how much confidence they have in the house that Downey has built so to speak right that right. they can play around with these stories and, and be bold about it and, and see what they can make you know so I you know me I'm a diehard DC guy and so watching my home team just get the snot kicked out of them by the other team is really painful but at the same time when you see a team show up and execute like Marvel does uh, you, you you can't help but be impressed with what they're doing so you know, I I think this is great. I I really think we're going to see good things from the Thor film.
0: And you made a good point that their major event that they've been building to arguably since the very first Iron Man movie is the culmination of all of this in a fight against Thanos in Infinity. Not only are we getting Thor in November, but Black Panther drops in between now and the next Avengers flick. Right? That's also one that it looks like they're taking some pretty different directions with. And I know you didn't have a chance to prep for this one, but did you have any thoughts on that one?
1: I do, actually. I'm glad you brought this up. I don't want to soapbox this one, but I I think there's something to be said here. We're going to talk about Wonder Woman in just a little bit, but there's something that is relevant in looking at Wonder Woman in the same thread as Black Panther, and that there was a test that took place with Wonder Woman. Can we do a female lead superhero film and have it bank and have it deliver to everybody's expectations? And clearly, Wonder Woman delivered in spades. So that's awesome, right? Well, on that same note, we have a very similar thing with Black Panther in that, you know, we are clearly going to do an African Slash African American centric storyline here because all of the, the the major significant leads are obviously African and or African American depending right and that again is a financial risk for a studio that's delivering a film like this right it looks great I think that uh, we're going to find that the genre of making these superhero films will break down the traditional marketing models of, yeah, dudes don't go see movies with women as leads. And I think you're going to see that same thing on this side that, you know, this traditionally, you know, suburban middle class white kid audience that's a superhero audience. Uh, is going to show up and see an African-American lead in a superhero film, and they're going to like it, and it's going to be something that they're going to come back for for multiple deliveries across the different Marvel titles. And I think that's awesome, you know, uh, that this genre in some ways is breaking barriers in the area of marketability of women in film and marketability of African-Americans in films. They're, they're breaking walls that other genres haven't done. That's huge. That is a big
0: deal. If this is a vehicle that ends up making a lot of money, and it will, because it's a Marvel picture, that is going to send a message to the power holders, the money holders, in not only the entertainment industry, but all industries, that there's a way to make this successful. There's a way to put all the creative power, because I think in addition to the cast, the the director and there's a number of the producers are all people of color, and 98% of the cast... With the exception of pasty-ass Martin Freeman. Right. We had to throw a hobbit in. <laughs> that full translucent. SPF two. I think you're right. I think if this is something that turns out to be successful, it, it's going to lead to opportunities that, that don't exist today. So that is pretty cool. It's right. kind of sad that it takes something like this to get people there, but you don't argue with the agent of change, right? It just serves its purpose.
1: Right. So that's where I'm at on this. You know, you saw that same thing, for instance, with Luke Cage, that you told a story that was an African-American story about Harlem and you you pulled in a, a diverse audience that enjoyed this story and you didn't. Uh, it was not whitewashed. It was a story that, that centered on this Harlem community, and it was a story about the African American experience, albeit science science fiction, of course. But still, it was an African American experience story, and it was fantastic. And uh, and I I'm I'm hoping that they looked at what worked so well in Luke Cage, and they're going to use that to kind of advance that. That, uh, that position within their, their title set. So I really am excited about Black Panther, just if for no other reason for that. Like, I want to see it succeed for that reason alone.
0: I am going to be jumping around here a little bit, and I apologize in advance. Um, I think it makes sense to talk about Infinity War before we move on to Justice League. The trailer became very difficult to find very quickly because, of, of course, it was filmed without Marvel's consent on cell phones, and they've been sending takedown notices to every video hosting site I was able to see it. I know that after days of searching, you have not been able to track down Infinity War. Let's start there with the fact that Marvel, with this film in particular, because we got Thor almost instantly, along with the people in the H-Hall or whatever that they were doing the Thor panel in. Marvel has a history of dropping huge trailers at Comic-Con, and then sometimes they release them a couple weeks later, sometimes they don't release them at all. I approach
1: this uh, this question from a couple of different perspectives, right? There's there's the fan in me that's eager to see the trailer. Uh, there's also the media savvy business person that is looking for the angle and trying to understand the value of creating scarcity from something like that. And uh, and it doesn't it doesn't track for me. Like it just doesn't make any sense because y- yes. Did you try to create an exclusive experience for people at Comic Con? Sure, I get that. That's fine, but uh, but at the same time, those people at Comic Con make up you know point zero 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 one percent of the people that you're hoping to reach for ticket sales for these movies. So you've got this nine hundred pound gorilla of a promotions machine just by way of the the name Comic Con. Like you've generated so much buzz around this thing that people are losing their minds to see your content and to choose to not show it just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, my God, you know, consider for a moment if 60 seconds after they show that trailer at Comic-Con, if Marvel said, hey, man, you can watch this trailer for a dollar, would you pay that dollar ten times? Yes. So let's follow this to its conclusion. The people were so rabid to see your content that you basically could have paid for the movie. And wow, maybe this is a great revenue stream now that I really think about it. You you could have paid for your production costs on your film by releasing the trailer 60 seconds later and allowing anybody that wanted to watch it to pay a dollar to watch it. And the idea that you're going to play, you know, peekaboo, let's not open the kimono and show everybody the trailer is
0: nine. Makes absolutely no sense to me. Marvel could make the claim that there is some revenance for the hallow tradition of Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con, the oldest Comic-Con, the original Comic-Con, and that people who paid a lot of money to get tickets and probably stood in lines for potentially days to get into the panel. It was their gesture of saying, for everything that you sacrifice to be here, we're going to give you something that no one else gets to see. And I get that you're
1: pandering to that audience and I, and and I understand the value in doing that. But at the end of the day, we're talking about really, really big cash here and maintaining the, the momentum of your, your promotions machine. I just, I don't buy that it was in their
0: favor to not do that. I just, I don't get it. Make no mistake. We're going to get an infinity war trailer in the next week or two. Right. But I can almost guarantee you it's not going to be the same content that they saw at Comic-Con. Because it was like four minutes of footage, and, and we'll get a two-and-a-half-minute trailer at best. Sure. But it, you, you want to know what was in it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it opens with a, a shot of the Guardians of the Galaxy, and the fucking crowd goes wild. Because, of course, they know what's coming next. And they're floating through space, and Star-Lord's like, hey, you know, we need to... Uh, Check and see what happened here, because I think they show up in like some, it looked like a battlefield, like some planets had blown up and there's just this big debris field that they're floating through. They're trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. And then Thor smacks into the windshield, like, you know, (laughs) classic like face and hands up against the windshield and Rockets like, oh, what is that? Get it off. (laughs) So they let Thor inside and, you know, he's got this really terrified look on his face. Like he's just seen some shit that he doesn't know quite how to process. And the footage that I saw, oh my God, the person that was recording it must have been standing like underneath the screen because it was like 45 degrees off with like a yaw and a pitch and a roll (laughs) that, that didn't really make sense to me. I was actually, as I was watching it, Carl, I was like craning my neck Because I thought that would somehow help me to be able to see the picture. Because it was. It was like if you move the screen about 40 feet up and about 20 feet to the right of your head, that's what it was like looking at this screen. So it was not good footage. But back to the storyline. We see a couple shots of of the Avengers. Doctor Strange is hanging out with them. That was cool. The audience really lost their shit when they switched to the next footage because you see Peter Parker on a school bus. Right. And um, they're driving along and he's got his arm up on the seat next to him and all of a sudden all the hair raises on his arms. And it's even happening right now as I talk about it. The fucking hair raised on my arm too because what are we seeing there? Spider senses are tingling. Yeah. So he's looking at his arm with this kind of like perplexed look like what the fuck is going on here? I, I think we actually get to see the birth of the Spidey sense in the MCU and it's kind of fucking cool I don't want to spoil everything no that's not true I want to ruin everything <laughs> I've been drinking so I don't remember everything we see Thanos with the affinity gauntlet you see all the stones lit up and it at one point it looks like he grabs a planet and throws it at the Avengers. <laughs> And I know that description doesn't do it justice, but you just kind of have to see how they managed to make a feat like that play out. We do get to see Spider-Man in the outfit that we saw at the end of Homecoming. Nice. So I think we had uh, speculated that we might be looking at the Miles Morales outfit since Peter Parker turned it down. Nope. He rolls into Avengers um, wearing that, that very same suit. Several more shots of pretty much every hero that we've been introduced to so far that they made a point to show... Black Panther and Doctor Strange and all of the kind of like ancillary characters in in all of those movies so far like everyone's showing up there was at least 40 different identifiable heroes in the movie that they showed in the trailer wow so is it safe to say that like Tony Stark is the Tim
1: Gunn of the Marvel Universe just like making outfits for everybody I mean he's gonna be busy (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly Make it work. I got to ask a question, though. My Marvel pedigree is not as strong as my DC pedigree. My understanding is that Vision's forehead dot is actually one of the Infinity Stones, right? So my question is, do we get in in the trailer, like, do you see Vision? Because I'm pretty sure, like, that's like his RAM,
0: right? Like, if you pull it, he doesn't work anymore. I think that's the Mind Stone. He absolutely ends up with it somehow. I don't know if it comes at the expense of Vision's bling or his whole head or his life. I don't know. But uh, we know he ends up with all of them. It's going to come at some kind of cost to the Vision.
1: So maybe we've divined something in the the plot here, you know, that Vision has to be at risk to tell this story because otherwise you can't put the Infinity Gauntlet together.
0: A character that we've been led to believe is pretty goddamn powerful, maybe second only to Scarlet Witch in the MCU to date. I could see it being pretty powerful that he goes down early.
1: Right, it's necessary to tell the story, I think. I'll tell you what, for a topic that only one of us has actually seen the content for, we've kind of stretched this out into <laughs> a, a pretty significant segment. So, what else do you want to say about it? Is there anything like what what do you think we're going to expect from this? Do you think it's going to deliver at the level that the hype
0: machine has led us to believe, or do you think uh, a letdown's inevitable? I don't believe that Marvel has made the best movie that they're capable of making yet. The first Avengers was pretty fucking great, and I still think there's the potential for an even bigger film. And if there was going to be one, it's one with this scale, this storyline, the iconic characters and story. I don't know. You know what, Carl? I've doubted Marvel before. You've heard me plenty of times. Shit, I thought the first Guardians movie was going to flop. Right. It's hard for me to doubt them anymore. I mean, with the exception of Ant-Man, which didn't do all that great, but people fucking love that movie. Yeah.
1: It was fun. It was a caper movie, but I don't think it has rewatchability. You know,
0: like I, I have not watched it all the way through a second time. Yeah. So Marvel hasn't made a bad movie. Right. They've made some that are less stellar than others. I think they're going all in on this one. And, and I think we're going to get something that somehow tops Avengers. That That's my prediction. I know, and I'm buying into the hype machine and, and setting myself up for a letdown, but that's probably only because DC has been conditioning me. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and that was my terrible transition into Justice League.
1: So Justice League, again, went back and watched the trailer for probably the fourth or fifth time, and I had a couple of general observations. The first observation is J.K. Simmons wins the award for being able to look like anybody. I mean, it's amazing to me. You like, you go back and you think about him as J. Jonas Jameson and, uh, and the Spider-Man stuff. Holy smokes, man. It looked like somebody had drawn him on the screen, right? Amazing. And and you would have never thought that the same guy that you made look like J. Jonas Jameson is going to work as Commissioner Gordon. But man... The the little bit of shtick that they do between Batman and and uh, and Gordon, and then of course the tail end with Flash and Gordon, is just absolutely fantastic. I, I loved it. Um, I thought it was really cool. I don't really feel like we learned anything new. I think that it was a uh, uh, pacing wise a really good put together of your content. I can definitely see Joss Whedon's hand. In in this sure um you know twenty five million dollars worth of reshoots to 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 get this film where he wanted it to be let's you, talk
0: about that yeah sure sure because that uh, was news what uh probably a week ahead of Comic Con was when that really was newsworthy is that uh, he'd gone back I read the word extensive in several different articles extensive reshoots I think that. There's a couple of
1: aspects to that. Uh, one could be the most straightforward one, which is he didn't like what he saw overall and that it that there were just a lot of corrections that needed to be made. Um, I think a, a a a slighter or a defter permutation of that might be that he just saw too much of Zack Snyder's fingerprints all over it and he didn't he didn't want to be doing cleanup for Zach Snyder. He wanted it to feel like his work. Um which I completely respect on on his part as an artist and as a director, that's totally cool. I think it's huge that Warner Brothers was willing to greenlight 25 million dollars worth of additional production cost on the film. So the question there is did uh Did Joss come forward with some ideas that were so freaking fantastic that they're like, yeah, dude, here's the cash or did Snyder turn in a stinker that was so bad that it was a necessary evil? You know, we, we talked before in, in, in my previous uh, episode with you guys about Snyder and um, you know the the terrible terrible unfortunate things that happened in his personal life and uh, and and I think it was great that he stepped away so he could you know deal with his family and 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 take care of things on that front. I, I feel awful about the fact that in a weird way, the the fans benefited from that. Uh, it feels terrible to even say that out loud, but you know, getting somebody else with a fresh perspective in regardless of the terrible circumstances that it took place in are, are probably good to get the film where it needed to be. So uh, you and I are both hardcore Buffy fans. We have a great deal of, uh, of trust in Joss Whedon. So I'm, Grateful that he was willing to step in an, in those unfortunate circumstances to hopefully, you know, right the ship.
0: Everyone who even has a, a passing interest in, in comic book or action movies has an immense amount of respect for what Joss was able to do with the Avengers franchise. I mean, he is responsible for the largest grossing Marvel movie, the first Avengers movie.
1: I wanted to ask you a question as as you saw the characters, because of course you get these like one second vignettes on what we're going to do with these character types and their personalities and all the rest of that stuff in terms of like who they're going to be and what they're going to be like. And to me, the biggest X factor going into Justice League is how do you make Aquaman consumable? Not in the fish stick form. Like how do you how do you how do you how do you make but, tartar but wait. sauce? Okay, but seriously, like I I literally just made the point that I was driving at. Right, Aquaman is a freaking joke, and he shouldn't be a joke. He he shouldn't. But Aquaman is a joke, and that's kind of Cartoon Network robot chickens fault. You know, it's a it's a it's a little bit across the board. Everybody like likes messing with the fish guy, right? But to me, like the biggest issue with making this movie well beyond you know the story and getting those things right is like how do you how do you sell these guys as being integral team members you know that, that make up this this bigger matrix of people that can succeed about you know whatever the heck it is that they're going to do right yeah. so do you think that they have sold Aquaman well enough To be relevant in this versus, you know, like fighting the dogged past of uh, Aquaman being
0: a joke. I don't know. I mean, you bring up a really good point because you can't do a Justice League movie without Aquaman. Agreed. Absolutely. I agree. And the universe that's been crafted so far is so dark and somber and serious that how do you take someone like Aquaman and insert him into that and expect it to work. I don't know that we got the answer in the trailer. No. I think that that's pending until we get to see the movie in its entirety. But I will say that visually, I really like what they did with Aquaman. Right. The fact that he is uh, godlike in powers, I think, is probably working in his character's favor in this iteration. Sure. Because it doesn't look like he can just mind control some fish That motherfucker appears pretty damn immortal, like on the Wonder Woman level.
1: Right. And I really like that. And and on that note, you know, I think that one of the most interesting steps that was taken in this storyline is in putting Batman in this role of baseball team manager. You know what I mean? Who's like trying to pull these people together now. That's not the traditional role of Batman in the comic book version of it. You know, the, the, the comic book version of Batman in Justice League is that he's always sort of playing the bluff that I know something that you don't know. So even though you're all gods, there might be something I know that could fuck you up. So you better let me play on your team with you. You know, like that that's always been his shtick, so to speak, right? Right. And there's a subtle shift, in my opinion, in the way they're positioning Batman and all this to be more of that team manager. And and if you think about it, yeah, you know, uh, Wonder Woman's got a lot of, of time and she has a lot of experience. But in terms of managing a game at the level that they're getting ready to play, this guy's got more
0: boots on the ground experience doing that. And I like that. As soon as they decided to go with a Frank Miller, Dark Knight Returns type Batman story, we saw shades of that all over the place. Oh yeah, right. We've got an older, seasoned Batman. They make a point to pepper in the history there. And there's even a reference in the trailer. Wind up penguins. I love the portrayal of Alfred too, as a side note there. But it makes sense that we're looking at a Batman that's learned some lessons and has come to the conclusion... That uh, facing a threat, which he knows he's not equipped to deal with, that that motherfucker's going to have to learn to get along with others in the sandbox pretty fucking quickly.
1: Okay, so I have one last Justice League question, and then we can move on. At the end, we have the sort of Jurassic Park gong, gong, and, you know, Alfred's bourbon glass is shaking on the table, which I thought was, you know, circa Jurassic Park, which I thought was pretty funny. Sure. And as a total side note, I love the fact that Alfred drinks bourbon. So who is the guy that shows up? Do you think it is as disappointing of a tease as just turning out to be Superman? Or do you think we've got a dark horse that's
0: going to show up? Well, the comment that Alfred makes to the unseen character is he said you'd come. Uh, Presumably, he's talking about Bruce saying, you know, this person's going to show up at some point. I think the fact that they didn't show him almost guarantees that it's kal because as far as the movie-going audience is concerned, he died in the last movie. So showing him in in this trailer would be a pretty shitty spoiler. Yeah. I'm glad that that we did not see his face, assuming that it was him. It's a fair question, though. If there was one thing that uh, we know about Joss Whedon is that he does like to mix shit up a little bit and use a lot of red herrings as a storytelling mechanism. There is a reference made to lanterns in this trailer as well right so i guess my second choice for whoever that may be and this is probably the dark horse candidate is a green lantern you think it's a justice league movie if you had your druthers and it's not superman
1: who would you like that other party to end up being and your answer is a lantern
0: a lantern and i'm going with hal jordan but that's just because i i'm a purist for the first justice league movie the dilemma with that is how in the flying fuck did you
1: manage to keep all that under wraps? You know what I mean? Yeah. It'd be so hard to sell. The only other uh who would I like it to be if it wasn't if it wasn't Kalel? Robin? Uh maybe. Sorry. No. That's a great choice. That's a great choice. Uh, maybe you know it wouldn't be this. This is my my deep nerd, right? Like I would love for it to end up being like Jason Todd or something. Like Red Hood shows up, but it won't be. You know, it that's that's too far down the rabbit hole for the the uh, average audience. Uh, it's gonna be Kal El, I think. Um, I would love it if there was some way that you could efficiently integrate Lantern efficiently integrate Captain Marvel, something like that. But I don't think Martian Manhunter? I thought about the Manhunter, but there again, you know, the problem is to accept Manhunter into the storyline, there's so much back dialogue that the audience has to digest in order to get to where they need to be for Manhunter that I don't see how you do that without having to give, you know, tip your hand earlier in the movie. So it's it's going to be Kell, and 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 let me tell you why I'm ninety percent. This is my prediction, right? Ninety uh, percent certain it's going to be Kell. The whole Jurassic Park, gong gong gong, and the you know the shaking bourbon glass. If you go back and you check the comic books in the Return of Superman after he was killed by Doomsday, there's this whole sequence where like he's walking on the seafloor, In some sort of Kryptonian incubation healing chamber thing that's this big walking robot thing. And the big reveal when he is back is this thing sort of like barfs him out circa giving birth to him. Uh, And ta-da, Superman's back. And that's where you first see him in the black suit and the long hair and the beard and everything else. Unfortunately, like I think it'd be awesome to, to like throw a curveball, but I think that that's what we're going to see, is that he's back circa this sequence in The Return of Superman in the comic books.
0: So if you accept that, and I do, for the reasons we've already discussed, again, Alfred says he said you'd come. Right. That implies that Bruce has some knowledge that Kal-El wasn't really dead to begin with.
1: So perhaps we're going to find out that Cadmus was involved and stole the body or some something, you know. That's my prediction. I, I don't know. That that seems to me to be a relatively easy little hitch to to fix in storytelling because, you know, let's be honest, you know, for the most part, people treat Batman like Santa Claus. You know, he knows everything. He's always watching. So that can be easily by way of plot mechanism just like explained away that he knew something about it. Ultimately, I would love it if we were completely just hit out of the blue with something different totally different you know power Girl, something but it it just won't happen because if there's any lesson that they learned in dc post uh green lantern is you know the green lantern movie is that you cannot accept your your audience that's still generally dipping their toes in all the subject area that the mainstay audience not the comic book nerd audience but the general ticket buying audience is they can't go that deep on a story on a material that they're unfamiliar with. You know what I mean? So I don't see them being able to throw a black Adam, a captain Marvel, a a Marsha Manhunter, because there's so much backstory you have to give in order to introduce them logically into the storyline that the audience just will go, Nope, I'm, I'm out. I don't get it. I don't, I don't, we just went sideways. So I think it will ultimately be Superman. So, you know, that's my prediction.
0: And it's a good one. It's almost certainly the right one. We've talked a lot about what's going to be hitting the big screen in the next several months. Uh, we also got a pretty good taste at Comic-Con of what to expect on the TV slate starting next month with the Defenders and then stretching well in, into into 2018. Right. I don't know that we saw anything really new regarding the Defenders in the clips that they released. Uh, really, this was, a, I think, a, a deeper dive into the fact that uh, Sigourney is our villain. We did get to see some Electra, which I don't think we'd seen up to this point. No. No Punisher, which I was kind of disappointed with. But all in all, I mean, I know this is something I'm, I'm going to watch. I, I'm actually really looking forward to it, despite the miserable failure of iron fist which <laughs> i thought was the most bizarre announcement of comic-con is they they made a point to let everyone know yeah iron fist got renewed for a second season wow i did not know that yeah that was something i think they kind of slid in along with everything else like he's gonna be back in his own series wow are you looking forward to
1: defenders i am looking forward to it What I love the most about what Marvel has been able to do is they've told stories at the macro to the microcosmic level and have done so beautifully. They've created the sense that, you know, look, Tony Stark cannot solve everything. There's got to be stuff that's beneath Tony Stark to deal with. And it's not that he's a bad guy. It's not that he wouldn't like to help somebody that's getting evicted from their apartment. But God damn it, he's got Thanos to deal with. All right. So somebody else has got to deal with freaking somebody, you know, down in Hell's Kitchen getting their ass kicked. Like somebody else has to do this because there's only so many hours in a day. And I love the fact that they've created a reasonable and plausible version of the universe where all those stories can exist at the same time, uh, I, I'm I'm very very uh, impressed with that. Perhaps more so than anything else that Marvel's done in the construction of their universe. As kind of a side note to that, you know, I I, I think about like my my girlfriend's parents that are approaching eighty have enjoyed every single property that uh, that's come out on Netflix. That's been uh, uh, the Marvel stuff, Jessica Jones, Daredevil. Like they loved them. They loved everything. Right. Are they showing up at the theater to watch Infinity Wars? Absolutely not. Overwhelming, too big. They haven't watched all the films, whatever. But but the storytelling that's been done on Netflix is so good and it's so encapsulated, despite the fact that it's in that same universe, that it's consumable by a, a completely different audience, which I think is amazing.
0: I think it's really, really impressive. That leads to a question that I've had for a while. They've made a point to let us know that the Defenders exist in the same MCU, and yet we have never seen any kind of crossover of characters between the cinema heroes and the Netflix heroes to date. Even S.H.I.E.L.D. gave us Nick Fury in the first season. Aren't we overdue for some kind of appearance in in one universe or the other? Maybe. I
1: think that this compartmentalization of the universe in this way is elegant because it's very, very reasonable to understand that Thor cannot deal with with a pickpocket in Hell's Kitchen. I think you're right. You could do some some nods that just create cohesion. You know, again, Tony Stark being the Tim Gunn of the Marvel Universe, maybe maybe he does some work on the, the Daredevil suit, something like that that just kind of, you know, helps to glue the larger world together. I think the most logical example Would be to have Spider Man interact with the Defenders. In terms of like the low to high, you know, you go from your Defenders to Spider Man, which is the gateway into the larger, you know, Avengers and all the rest of that stuff. So I think Spider Man is the bridge that would potentially connect the street level stuff into um, the Avengers. Um, That would be super cool if they could do that. I, I don't know that they will. But um, but I think that they've made a good enough, cohesive, logical case to the the viewer that, you know, these people that at, that interact at a God level in the Marvel Universe just cannot deal with the street level bullshit because they got to stay focused on the sky. Uh, and so I think they've done a good job at justifying how these people live like 10 blocks from each other, but they don't interact with each other.
0: There's no scenario you think where we might see Daredevil in Infinity?
1: I think it would be neat if they could, but again, I don't think that's a problem so much with Daredevil. I think it's a problem with Infinity Wars that at this point, your you know, your chorus of players in uh in Infinity War is so big that if if Infinity War fails for any reason, I think it will be that it 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 topples under its own weight. Because you're trying to figure out how to give adequate screen time to A-list stars. Sure. You know, A-listers. And and we're talking like 20 of them. You know, how do you do that and still tell a good story? How do you get these people to check their egos and and accept the fact that your part might be only five minutes in this movie, despite the fact that you're an A-lister? Because you have to play a five-minute part. Because even though you don't... Think this other person's more important than you? They are in this storytelling medium, you know. Um, I, I think that that's the biggest risk that you run with Infinity Wars is that it topples under its own weight.
0: Which is a great segue into uh, the next couple properties that I want to talk about. Marvel's had a, a pretty good run, even on the small screen. Legion was amazing, in no small part because it was so different than anything that we had seen up to this point. Yeah, we've got. Two shows that are debuting in the next two months, uh, both in Inhumans and The Gifted, that represent an even further extension of Marvel properties onto TV. You use the phrase toppling under its own weight. So in addition to S.H.I.E.L.D. and five different Netflix television shows, we're getting two new shows that Marvel is hoping will generate some interest. Are they setting themselves up for failure here? You threw me a
1: a softball on this one, and that's okay because you know that uh, this is the section that grinds my (laughs) gears, right? Let me tell you what grinds my gears. I think that Marvel has maybe overextended its reach a little bit with the uh, production on Inhumans and The Gifted. We're at a point where networks are clamoring and begging to get a hold of a property that they can say, see, look, we too have a comic book property. And I think that Marvel has gotten a little bit greedy with these two because I don't think you have enough story in either one of these properties to tell a good enough story to keep people in place for multiple seasons. I want to make this point in a couple of different ways. Uh, The first of which is, ain't nobody know who the hell the Inhumans are. The only... (laughs) You know what I mean? Like the only real reference to the Inhumans is what's been set up by way of ABC and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And listen, I've been dreading as a comic book fan the moment where I knew that people were going to start releasing stinker properties just to have new comic book properties on TV. You know, I'm so excited about the movement. I want to see good stuff happen with it. And I and I want it to go on as long as it can in terms of like the comic book renaissance that we're seeing. Knowing that, you know that greed is going to breed proliferation and you're going to see more and more of those properties. And as far as I'm concerned, we're not even on the JV bench at this point. We're on like the sophomore bench doing uh, Inhumans and The Gifted. There's no one that the audience knows already to bank and to pivot off of. You know, there is no Iron Man. There is no Spider-Man. There's there's not anything like that that's going to draw more than the hardcore comic book audience. And the reality is that hardcore comic book audience cannot keep a show on television, particularly when you're now asking them to split their viewing time across 15 active properties at any given time. Right. My bold prediction will be that The Gifted and Inhumans will probably be the first two comic book properties that are canceled in the first season.
0: I don't know that I'm going to disagree with you. I'm looking through the cast of characters uh, for Inhumans, Black Bolt, Medusa, Karnak, Maximus. I don't recognize any of this shit. And and granted, I'm not a Marvel fan, but I ran the same list by Eric, who is a Marvel fan, and he recognized maybe one or two of them. So literally scraping the bottom of the barrel at this point, that's not the recipe for a successful television show.
1: What's happened with all these comic book properties, and this is true for DC and Marvel both, is that they are drawing on a glut of great material that that goes back as much as, uh, you know, 35 years in some cases. And so, like, they're looking at this as like this bottomless barrel of content. And I got news that the barrel is not bottomless. And I think for Marvel, on the front of trying to do television mutant-centric stuff, because let's be honest, I mean, Inhumans are mutants by another name, you know? Because they can't legally call them mutants. That's the real problem, is they're stepping on their drugs, right? Like, they're, they're trying to figure out a way to get away with turning out more stuff – despite the fact that they don't have more stuff to sell. So they're like stepping on their drugs and cutting it with something else so they can still call it Marvel premium content. And I just don't think it is.
0: And on that note, we're going to shift away from comic books because even though it was Comic-Con, we got a taste of a lot of other interesting properties. Let's get away from uh, comics for a little bit and talk about some of the other stuff that we saw. Starting with one that i am now even more excited about than ever star trek discovery which we get in 2 months i have great expectations star trek went into
1: incubation post enterprise you know they they realized very judiciously that they'd gone back to the well too many times and it was time to let star trek sit on the shelf for a little bit obviously by way of like 2009 we started seeing new movies but in terms of tv property they realized you know, they'd had a great run and that it was time to let it sit for a bit. And I am absolutely floored by what I am seeing in, in, in the trailer content and what I'm reading online about Star Trek Discovery. I was a little spooked at first because of the massive delay in the delivery. But I feel like what we saw in the sizzle reels and the trailers shows that somebody had a deft hand at this, knew that they needed to put the brakes on, do a little work on it, and get it where it needs to be. It looks to me like the focus on this, number one, factually, this is going to take place give or take like 10 years before Kirk and the Enterprise. The first thing I thought was, geez, if this thing is successful enough, if you assume you know years are, are real years, you, know, you could actually run this series up to the point where we see a, a Kirk and Spock on TV again. But I like the idea that we're going to explore the idea of a Cold War between the Klingons and the Federation. Um, No one's really done that before. And when you look at the development of properties like this, one of the, the things that you have to do is you have to look at how it plays to your non-embedded audience. You and I are an embedded audience. I mean, and even if it's not great, we're going to give it two seasons just to see where it goes. Right? Sure. And I will tell you that I I had a, a friend that's somebody that we both know that watched the trailer for this for the first time with me. And this guy is completely not a science fiction guy. He's definitely not a loyal canon science fiction nerd fan. But watched that trailer and just went, Jesus Christ, I can't wait for that to come out. And to me, like that's the litmus test for great, because you and I are noseblind to whether or not it's really good. Because we just have a boner that it's on TV again, you know? But if you get somebody that's like outside of canon, that's not a Star Trek nerd, that watches that trailer and goes, Holy shit, this looks fantastic, that's to me the measure of success, at least initially for, for audience pull.
0: And I wonder if anything about uh, this individual's opinion had to do with the fact that the production quality on this looks cinematic, at least. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it, this is the the most fantastic production quality for a small screen product that I think any of us have ever seen. Uh, if if this thing dies in, in at the end of one season, it's going to die on production cost.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's an easier prediction to make because it looks fucking expensive because it looks great
1: yeah I mean it's it's, it's amazing like I I again to this uh, this this mutual acquaintance of ours he actually said that he's like, oh my God is this gonna be on TV that alone and just sold him on it and that's that's huge you know because it, it in my opinion you know that harkens back to the early days of uh, of Star Trek. You know, you think about it? Why initially with a non science fiction audience? Why did Star Trek succeed? Because nobody would seen anything like that on TV before. It was amazing, and and maybe this has that same re energizing effect with uh with Star Trek that that people look at this again and go, oh my god, I can't believe this is on television. So I have, I have fingers crossed, highly hopeful. I think it's going to be amazing. Let's just hope for the best with Star Trek because I think it's going to be great.
0: I'm starting to feel the same way. I was really worried for a long time for some of the reasons that you mentioned, but I think this looks like they've taken it to a, a level that the property hasn't seen before. Maybe even on the big screen. Who knows?
1: Maybe. Yeah, sure. So that's Star Trek. What else would you like to talk about?
0: Let's stick with sci
1: fi. Okay.
0: Something we've been looking forward to for a while, which is some hint of what is to come in the Westworld universe.
1: I loved Westworld. I thought the the first uh, season was fantastic. I really, really have nothing at all negative to say about Westworld. I don't know how many people realize that Westworld was originally a Michael Crichton property. Right. And tell me if you've heard this story before. We build this giant theme park and shit gets out of hand and the attractions in the park get out and start
0: killing people. (laughs) Yeah, Eric and I actually talked about that in a previous episode of Project Challenge, that it really did seem in retrospect like his proving ground for Jurassic Park.
1: Absolutely. You know, Westworld was the beta version of Jurassic Park. The story is anecdotal. So it's it's sort of mythologically anecdotal to tell the story of, you know, man thinking he's God and then realizing that shit goes sideways and you're not nearly as tough as you thought you were. So I don't mind the fact that, you know, you've borrowed from sort of a, 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 a classic framework of storytelling. That's OK. He did it twice. He did it. You know, twice over 20 years. So again, I'll give him a pass on the distance between the two. But it doesn't change the fact that the story that you tell under those circumstances ends up being the same story, which is the park gets out of control. You either get the park back under control or the dinosaurs get out like it's one or the other. You know, there, there's no other version of it. You know, you either kill all the dinosaurs, get them back on leashes, or you accept the fact that the dinosaurs got out of the park. So I'm struggling with how, as a Crichton fan, you can do a Westworld second season where in the back of my mind, I'm not just seeing Jurassic Park.
0: Thoughts? First of all, I want to point out that I really appreciate the fact that it's Jonathan Nolan, right, that's doing this property and J.J. Abrams. Right. I like the fact that we got a little taste but that we didn't get anything that was any kind of indication of a storyline other than the machines are, are on the hunt. The robots are rolling around killing people. We saw Dolores on horseback picking off what are presumably humans with a shotgun. Yes. That was pretty fucking cool. We got a, a brooding shot of Bernard looking down at the corpse of, was that just a regular tiger or was it like supposed to be like a saber tooth tiger or, or what? I don't know.
1: At the end of the last episode, we got, you know, the tail end, the the finale, we got the clue that there was like maybe samurai world, there was maybe medieval world, whatever. So if you just like do the geography on this, Bernard is probably in samurai world, right? To get to a place where we got tigers.
0: Yeah. Maybe. And I think that may be from a storytelling perspective, what allows them to do something that deviates from the story that we're very familiar with in Jurassic Park. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still, we've got a a collection of things, creatures, robots, whatever that we think are under our control, but they're obviously not. But if you can keep it fresh by taking that story into different settings, um, that's one way that they might be able to extend it. That was one of the big worries I had at the end of the first season is like, where do they go from here? Right, now that all our children are grown up. If the plan is... To do a limited run, which is the recent trend, especially like on HBO shows, that's great. I guess I should start preparing myself for that now because I really, the first season of Westworld, one of the reasons that I loved it so much, Anthony Hopkins, he's not coming back, well, at least that we know of. So already diminished a bit in my eyes, it's going to be ridiculously difficult to pack as many surprises as we saw the cat's out of the bag now. What other reveal can you make that's going to have the impact of what we've already seen? But they're obviously taking their time with it. I mean, it was two years between the first and second seasons. There's some different settings that they may be able to mix it up with. And we've got some proven talent at the helm. I think it's also important to note that my
1: criticism of it being a, you know, to some extent a Jurassic Park retread is in no way a criticism of the quality of what's been produced by way of the work that HBO has done. Because, you know, we're, my criticism is, you know, Michael Crichton retreaded his own story. That's not HBO's problem. HBO chose a version that had not yet been done, and has done it in a very great, unique, and an incredibly cool way. You know, so I, I I think it's important to say that yeah, while the author may have retreaded their content, HBO has not. HBO has breathed very interesting detail into the world that Michael Crichton set up. So that's the first observation. And the second thing is, you know, you you hit it on the head. I read an article a little while ago, actually, where Nolan point blank said, we really don't know how many seasons we can stretch this. We feel like it's probably going to be short-lived. And I'm okay with that. I think that's perfectly all right. I would much rather you do three amazing miniseries arcs and be done with an excellent story than try to beat this thing into submission.
0: As long as we get a satisfying finale, because God damn it, Penny Dreadful broke my fucking heart.
1: I knew where you were going with that. I, I was so sad, 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 and disappointed with where Penny Dreadful ended. It was awful.
0: And in contrast to that, I know a lot of people didn't appreciate it. I really liked the finale of the leftovers. Uh,
1: uh man, I don't know. We could do a whole episode that is just, how did you feel about how things ended? Because I have a lot of thoughts on 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 how Leftovers ended, and this is not the right time to go into those, but yeah.
0: I think Leftovers is an example of how you end a show after a reasonably short run. You tell a good story, you tie up loose ends, um, and you don't overstay your welcome. Right. This next property that we're going to talk about, I think, maybe has started to grow a little long in the tooth. And I love the show, but in the five minutes of the walking dead season eight footage that we got. I can't tell you that I got really excited about anything at any point.
1: This is the one that I did not make it to. So we're going to switch roles here for just a second. And I'm, and I'm going to ask you questions and I want to see where you end on this one. Do you feel like they can continue to tell new stories in this space? Or do you think it's at a point where we're just retreading? We're trying to survive.
0: I'll tell you this, um, we are getting dangerously close to the point that Game of Thrones reached last season, where the television content has caught up to and will soon exceed the source material. Right. Kirkman is still actively writing The Walking Dead, and they're great, but Negan is the biggest and best thing to have ever happened in The Walking Dead. By far, sure. To my knowledge, there hasn't been anyone since, although admittedly, I haven't read the last few issues. But I think they've got maybe, if they do another season after this one, because I, I'm starting to think that this may be the last one, but they've got maybe one more season of storytelling that they can do before they are strained into uh, original territory. And obviously Kirkman works on the show, so he can let them know like R. R. Martin does for Game of Thrones. But um, the question is, is like, do we really want that? Now, as a fan, I want one badass season where... It leads up to the ultimate fight with Negan and then they throw down and instead of capturing him and and keeping him like they do in the comic book, he gets killed and then they draw it to a conclusion.
1: I've been having a problem with this for a while with Walking Dead. I feel like the right answer to this question of like, geez, how do we survive is you move to Long Island and you blow the bridge. You know, you go to South Carolina, you find an island off the coast of South Carolina, Hilton Head, something like that, right? You sail there and we ain't got no problems anymore. So I feel like at some point the storytelling exigence has started to outweigh the common sense of how people would legitimately seek to survive in these circumstances, Because there's easier paths that one can take, you know, you, you, you know, you load up that goddamn Winnebago with gasoline and you drive to North Dakota because, you know, I got a sneaking suspicion that zombies don't move so good when it's negative 20 degrees, you know, (laughs) you move your ass to Alaska, you know, you get your ass on an island off the coast, whatever, right? Um, Because presumably in this walking dead world like there's so few humans left that it's not even like you're fighting for premium property off a coast or something you know if there was something there that's like hey if we do this this and this we can restore order so the risk is worth the gamble in order to maybe save everything great i can buy that as maybe a multi-season arc to get us there but if it's just geez we're gonna survive y'all are dumb Y'all need to get on a boat and just get 10 miles off the coast and all your problems are solved.
0: Yeah. Which obviously isn't compelling television. But then again, that's where the show is getting to with the story that they're telling now. I mean, it's just it, it has lost its real addictive edge that it had for right. a good five or six seasons.
1: Sure. The thing about Walking Dead that's always worked is that there is no real timeline, right? Like you don't, you don't know are these events. With the exception of Coral growing up, right, you don't have a sense of continuity of time. So is all this happening in eight months or is it happening in five years? You know, And with the exception of this kid that you're watching grow up in front of you, you could make the case that all this is taking place in five months. right? So to that end, I'll allow you to be dumb shits for a longer number of seasons if you try to sell me on the idea that this is all taking place in like a five-month period. But if we accept the idea that this is, like, taking place over eight years, y'all are at the bottom of the goddamn class. Seriously. (laughs) I am no good with a machete, and I've fired a gun three times in my life, but I know that the right answer is water. Get the hell off the coast, you know? And y'all are in
0: Georgia. It's not that far. Yeah. The commentary on humanity that they've made really since the beginning of the show is – that man is always going to be worse than these terrifying zombie creatures. But we're now on our fourth big baddie. And he's the best and was perfectly cast. And I love the portrayal of Negan in the show. It will not be enough to keep me watching for another two or three seasons. They have got to get this wrapped up. And so, you know, it's interesting that you say that about, about, about him because,
1: again, I, too, love Jeffrey Dean Morgan. I think he's fantastic. I think he uh, was, was perfectly cast in this role. But the one thing that's always bothered me about Negan is there's a tremendously practical component that is largely ignored about him, which is all of your power rests in you being the boogeyman. And what happens when you get sick? Negan has never built political loyalty that protects him in the event of his physical or psychological infirmity. So, Negan is portrayed as this guy that's like this genius tactician who has like set up the society, boom, 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 and you know, created all these things to to protect and do this, that, and the other, and whatever. But the one thing that he hasn't done is created a system of, of genuine loyalty that protects him. In the event that he gets his goddamn leg chopped off or something like that, you know, and that's the one thing that I thought the writers legitimately failed at with him as a villain is his version of power is absolutely unsustainable. I mean, he is literally one bout of
0: pneumonia away from being completely fucked. Well, and if that's the narrative arc that they use to bring about his downfall, then it's effectively done, right? But the
1: downfall is so logical that the person that set all of it in motion, the Machinations, a.k.a. Negan, he should have known better. He's smart enough to know that he has built no loyalty independent of their fear of him and, and uh, freaking Lucille. Right?
0: The point being made at the end of that story is that there's no room for narcissistic psychopaths in the post-apocalyptic United States.
1: Right so I agree with you I want Walking Dead to go out strong I think you're right it's strategically solid to do this with a Negan story I I truly want to see you know the end being you know hey guys let's get on a boat and go to Catalina you know and that be the sort of the end of it that we have a place where these people can ride it out and can be safe and and semi happy while like nature takes its course and all these zombies eventually fall apart and ta-da we can repopulate the planet Uh, I don't know if they'll do that it's so financially lucrative for amc and they don't have anything else really loaded
0: up at the moment as a replacement actually you're wrong there this is something that really surprised me when i read that well first of all better call saul is doing amazing it actually has better ratings than breaking bad no kidding i didn't know that and it's because everyone who watched breaking bad is watching better call saul and the new audience that it's managed to garner But the number one ranked cable television show right now is The Walking Dead. The number two is Fear the Walking Dead.
1: Which is crazy because I gave that one one season and it was okay. But it just felt like Inhumans and The Gifted.
0: (laughs) Carl, I agree with you 100%. I gave it one season and then I think I watched the first couple of the second season. Everyone I know who still watches that show says... You didn't give it enough time. Go back. It is so good. And the numbers are there to support it. Well, that's good. That's
1: a great recommendation for this show. Yeah, like the the audience should go out and check out Fear the Walking Dead because it just didn't get a fair shake.
0: And lends even more credence to our suggestion that now is the time to retire the original property and throw all your creative resources into Fear the Walking Dead. Into something new. Right. There's no reason that they can't take that show for another five, six years or even do a third property. I mean, what's to stop them from doing uh, Walking Dead Africa or what's going on in in some other country that's not the United States? Because all we've seen so far is East Coast and West Coast of America.
1: That's good. I mean, I hope that they are smart enough to know to not prostitute their own properties into the ground. You know, know when it's time to gracefully leave. So. The last thing that I really wanted to talk to you about, and I know this is probably huge for everybody,
0: is Stranger Things. And I'm glad we saved this one for last, because it was hands down my favorite trailer from Comic-Con. Right. So, why? For all the reasons that I loved the first season of of Stranger Things. uh, It's different, and yet so familiar they managed to take something which are almost tropes and cliches at this point and turn it into something fresh and amazing i really got to hand it to the duffer brothers that they've managed to pull off a feat like that because for something that sucks so many teats it doesn't suck at all right that trailer of everything that i saw over last weekend um during all the comic-con panels and whatnot it's the only one where i was like yeah like it actually got me excited Michael Jackson, as your soundtrack for this trailer, perfectly used. An iconic 80s song that is all about the gory and, and the terrifying. It starts off in an arcade, which instantly hooked me in, and then transitions to some crazy shit where we're starting to see this kid who we knew there was something wrong with him at the end of the first season because he was still barfing up gigantic leeches in, in the sink. This kid's pretty fucked up, and he starts... Uh, Seeing some crazy shit. And then right at the end, we see Eleven in the Upside Down and then uh, stretch her hand through some kind of membrane into what is presumably the real world. The show is just so much fun. We spend so much time watching some of our favorite properties be serious that when you see something like this that just wants to take you on a great fun house ride I'm all for it. I want to take that ride. I'm really looking forward to it. And and this drops in just a couple of months, appropriately, right around Halloween. I couldn't be more excited.
1: Yeah. Stranger Things did a better job of distilling everything about the 80s that people loved into a single property and stylizing it in a way that was genius and capitalizing on the things that we knew were these trope content, you know, but we didn't really know it because we hadn't really put the thought into like really identifying it as such. They did a great job of seeing those things for what they were and consciously integrating those things into the show. And And then as an audience member, I don't know if this was the intent or if it was just me as a critic that was was thinking about it this way, but realizing like, the genius of oh my god think about how many of those early 80s films were like kids against the government yeah and thinking about like how fundamentally preposterous of a premise that is right but <laughs> how many of those movies followed that arc that we as kids thinking that that was like a thing like that was real that that you know maybe at some point kids are going to be against the government and being able to consciously mine those resources and see those threads between all those different movies and mine it out and then create a cohesive story out of it. There's two versions of this for me. There's watching it and going, geez, this is fun to watch. And then there's the hack writer, the hack cultural critic in me that watches what they did. And I'm just floored by what somebody pulled out of thin air and accomplished with it. So I'm super excited about it. It was so dark horse. They had no idea that it was going to do what it did. And I can't wait to see what they had on page two that they didn't use in the first one that now they want to tinker with in the second one. And and I'll just like give an example of this in case the audience is like, where is he going with this? What didn't we do? We didn't do Robot Kid, right? So we didn't do Daryl. We didn't do War Games, Right, so we didn't do uh, computers taking things over, right? Um, that are consistent themes across those those '80s movies, you know. And I'm sure that if we sat here and thought about it for a while, we could come up with a bunch more. You know, there's these five or six that they used that were trope genius, and then there's like, what didn't they? You know, and now how can they mine those and bring those other qualities in? <clears throat> and the last point I want to make on this because I'm kind of monologuing here, so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Why is the 80s so intoxicating to everybody?
0: Why? And Carl, as you've been talking about Stranger Things, it made me realize that uh, we neglected to talk about what I consider to be one of the bigger movie reveals at Comic-Con. So if you don't mind hanging out a few minutes longer. Of course not. Let's go. Let's talk about Ready Player One, because it hits on everything that you just talked about, which starts and ends with a, a fascination with 80s pop culture.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, this question that's been rattling around inside my head for a while now. Let's work backwards. The you know the two thousands, the aughts are disposable. You know we haven't seen anything, and I don't really think there's anything that came out of that from a pop culture perspective, movie and film, that kind of thing that was so of note that uh, that we're gonna see that. You know, in film as nostalgia, fifteen years from now,
0: I don't think it's going to be there. Um, uh, the '90s, what? So, give me your example. What do you got? Well, I know it's technically a '90s property, but I would have to say that South Park stands out for me.
1: Okay, I will give you South Park, but that's because it's a beautiful and unique unicorn, right? But other than that, you know, you don't, you don't have anything. You know, the 90s were such a serious time between the, the, the music of the period. You, you really had this significant hiatus of, uh, of, of science fiction at the time. You know, your your breakpoints are 92, you have the second Terminator film, and then you have 99, the second Matrix film, or the first Matrix film. But other than that, it's a dead zone between there for like significant science fiction. But the 80s were just this wealth. I don't know how to explain it. You talk to kids today, I mean, I talked to my nephews who are 16, 17 years old at this point, and they are still enraptured with the 80s, and that's disproportionate, because we're talking what at this point, uh, 27, as much as 37, as much as 40 years ago? Yeah. So let's do the math on this. In 85, were you interested in music that was being produced in
0: 1945? Not on any significant scale. I mean, there's one-off examples, but film, television, no way, man. But these kids are are watching
1: like you said, like Ready Player One. You know, look at the cultural references in this. Like I watched the trailer and I did a little like pause stop, pause stop along the way. I saw the Iron Giant I saw Freddy Krueger, I saw an orc, presumably from Warcraft, we heard Tom Sawyer, and we saw the freaking DeLorean in a car chase.
0: Yeah, and that was just the tip of the iceberg.
1: Yeah, that was just what I caught in watching it, you know, in slow-mo. I mean, my god.
0: To your point, the 90s and 2000s, they were not as fun as the 80s. I guess it's just that. It just wasn't as fun. It wasn't. And in my mind, the 80s were really the birthplace of what I call pop culture. You can give me examples that predate that, and I will argue that they do not compare to the volume, the scope, the enjoyability, and to your point earlier, how long it has endured and persisted in its popularity. Ready Player One, as much as Stranger Things was a love letter to 80s horror, Ready Player One is a love fucking magnum opus to 80s pop culture. And it gets a little tiring at times because there's sometimes when I think like Ernest Klein just wanted to see how many like masturbatory references he could fit in. (laughs) Member, member. I mean, this is the Memberberry movie. Yeah. And book, the book that it's based on uses that as a storytelling mechanism. In short, for our listeners who aren't familiar with the book, which you should just pick up and read right now because you can finish it in a day. It's that captivating, especially if you have any kind of appreciation for 80s pop culture. But the story is that we're in a shitty Earth in the near future. Famine and disease and population have reached a point where Earth is not a fun place. So along comes a VR experience where there's a guy that invents this video game called The Oasis. That essentially it starts off as uh, a fun video game and then eventually replaces all forms of entertainment and education to where most people are just spending all of their time in this virtual environment. And the guy that created it was a huge 80s pop culture fan. And at the beginning of the story, he dies and says, uh, you know what? I've left a game within my game. And it's a hunt for my Easter eggs. And it's going to be difficult, but there's a reason for that. There is a company that wants to take over the Oasis and basically turn it into a gigantic advertising mechanism that, you know, they want to insert ads into this experience. So everyone who's enjoyed it, essentially for free, it costs you a quarter to play at the beginning, you know, just like a classic arcade video game. And you only pay 25 cents for this thing your entire life. Now you have the option to like buy all the cool like gear and costumes and vehicles and whatnot. But the universe that they established is each planet is a different area of pop culture. So you've got the Back to the Future planet and the Iron Giant planet and the Star Trek planet. And then it absorbs all of the existing games. So you've got a World of Warcraft planet and anything that you can think of that was relevant. It's got like its own dedicated space where that's where the fans hang out and do their thing. Right. So in order to prevent the capitalist company from taking over the Oasis company, the guy who died willed the entire game and the corporation to whoever finds all of his Easter eggs. So every kid in the world starts to invest all of their time into learning every 80s video game, watching every 80s television show, every 80s movie. It's to their benefit. Right. It's research. Exactly. So... They spend all their time doing this all day and then, you know, trying to find where he's hidden these Easter eggs. And that's really all I'm going to say about the story, because that's kind of what they convey in the first, you know, probably 50 pages of the book. But it's it's how it plays out. And there's some pretty cool things that happen. It, it's really fun. I'm kind of concerned about how it's going to play out on the big screen, but it's in very capable hands with Steven Spielberg. So... I think
1: this movie will do well. I think it'll be a huge success. I think, to me, in a weird way, sort of the cinematic proving ground for its success, this will seem like an odd play until you hear me out on this, but it's it's that in Batman the Lego movie, you had <laughs> all of those villains come in that were like, you know, larger Warner Brothers and Universal property villains that became the villains in the storyline. You successfully tested in that Lego movie the ability to play to a larger audience where you mismatch, you know, you've got the Wicked Witch of the West in in the Batman Lego universe. Like you've proven that people are capable of, on a cultural level, dissecting the sort of non-sequitur quality of having these like disenfranchised villains from across these properties show up. Literally disenfranchised. (laughs) Yeah, literally disenfranchised villains show up across these properties. I do share one concern that I think, you know, you hit on it. And I think I'm going to say this and you're going to probably flesh it out a little bit. The only thing I don't like about the road that this goes down is I don't want everything that we like to become member berries. This movie is an example of going down the road of your entire childhood
0: being cannibalized into member berries. And that's troubling to me. There were many instances when reading the book where I felt like I was being pandered to. And he still managed to pull it off. I can't tell you... Why? Because I don't think he's a particularly strong writer. I think someone was going to be able to tell it once or twice and go as wide as he did with all of the references. Right. After that, everything else you know, just becomes a, a retread of it. But it's done in such a reverent way versus an exploitative way that it still somehow manages to work. There's a lot of reasons I looked for to not like it and I couldn't find enough. And I agree with you,
1: but I think that as so often is the case, you know, South Park was first to the mark, if you will, on recognizing a trend and the whole Memberberry thing with them was so genius. And at first you're like, uh, you're laughing, you think it's funny, you think it's great. And then a little ways into it, you start realizing that, you know, (laughs) they're really talking about your memories quite literally being prostituted. Yeah. And that's my only fear with all this is I think it's great to sort of judiciously take a a, a stroll down memory lane, but I don't want my childhood to be prostituted, which is different than saying I don't want to be a prostitute in my childhood.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because one of those is a really bad thing. Yeah, and one of them is a way worse thing. (laughs)
1: And I'm going to leave it to the the (laughs) listener to decide which of the two is which.
0: (laughs) And on that note. (laughs) Yeah, we've got a lot of good content tonight, so we should probably get wrapped up. But uh, I really enjoyed this dialogue. I look forward to Eric's thoughts on Comic-Con as well. I look forward to a lot of the feedback that we got on the Project Challenge episode tonight. Um, I know we've been gone for a while, took a little hiatus for the summer, but we've got a lot of great content and guests lined up for the coming months, so tune back in. Joining me from, is it the balmy climbs of Kansas City, Missouri this evening?
1: The 800 feet above sea level of Kansas City that is uh, tits hot, yeah. I went for a run with my group this evening, and at 7 o'clock tonight, it was 101 degrees. Jesus Christ. So... Yeah. Madre de freaking Dios. It was, it was ugly. So I'm not entirely certain. I've still finally cooled down after that whole thing, but yeah, we're not ready for winter, but we're definitely ready for summer's back to be broken here. Yeah, man, this is fun. I love it. I would absolutely love to be a recurring guest on Project Challenge because I think this is a great, great resource for everybody. Um, and it's a
0: ton of fun to do. I can't wait to see where this thing goes. So thanks for having me back. Thanks for helping me put together a great episode tonight. I really appreciate it. Cool. Here at Project Challenge, we love all kinds of feedback and questions. You can find our email and Facebook details at projectchallenge.com. Follow us on Twitter at OGChallenged and drop a review for the show on iTunes or the Play Stores. Huge thanks to all the listeners, supporters, and Carl. And until next time, stay challenged.